You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. If you've experienced something strange, something paranormal, a cryptid, aliens, ghosts, anything strange or unusual, or if you have an idea of a story you'd like us to cover, drop us an email, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. Tonight we're going to be talking with John, and he starts out telling us about some sleep paralysis experiences with some really strange things associated with it. The one story is really, really interesting with a kind of a phantom phone call and sleep paralysis, and it, it ties into Civil War reenactment. And it's just a really, really neat story. John also tells us about a few ghost experiences he's had. He worked in Gettysburg for a while, and he's had experiences at a few other historic sites in the country and in Europe as well. Then the conversation veers into just talking about the other and possible explanations for these things. I think we cover some pretty interesting ground. And we end up talking about World War I. John wrote a book about World War I. It's a beautiful book, highly recommended. It's called The Verdun Regiment by Jonathan Bracken. You can find it on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. John has been a huge supporter of the show. He gave me a copy of this book, which is absolutely beautiful hardcover. If you're interested at all in history in general or World War I in particular, I would definitely pick up this book. And I want to thank John once again. Thank you so much for sending the book and for your support of the show. It's just been incredible. I was really touched. John also sent me, with the book, 
a round of French 8mm ammunition that he found at Verdun. What an amazing piece of history. I mean, I, I was just so touched by the whole thing and, and by John's support. If you want to help support Strange Familiars, please consider becoming a patron at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. $3 a month gets you extra shows. There are other levels of support there for books and t-shirts and all kinds of things. You can go in at different levels and get different items. But $3 a month gets you extra shows. We do at least one extra show a month for our patrons. We try to do more than that. Lately, we've been averaging two or three shows a month for our patrons. And these are full episodes of Strange Familiars. They're not little short bits. April's a pretty busy month, so we're probably just going to have one this month. But you're guaranteed one every month, at least. And then we, we try to do more besides. Our patrons really help us make Strange Familiars. They help us keep making content. So thanks to all the patrons. Again, if you want to help, it's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. If you don't like the idea of a subscription like Patreon, you can always do a one-time donation via PayPal. We have a paypal.me link that's in the show notes at strangefamiliars.com. The way to help that doesn't cost anything is to leave us nice five-star reviews at iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to the show and share the shows on social media. Before we get to the interview with John, I do want to say at some point in our discussion, I mentioned that primates don't have a tapetum lucidum. What I meant to say is great apes don't have tapetum lucidum. So before anybody writes to correct me, yes, some primates do have a tapetum lucidum. Great apes do not. But without further ado, let's get to our interview with John. All right, tonight we're talking with John, who's had a number of experiences we're going to talk about, including uh, what sounds like a really neat sleep paralysis experience he wrote me about. But you kind of mentioned some other stuff in the email. I'll just let you take it away, and we can kind of pick and choose and hear the different stories and go from there. Yeah, that sounds good. So I've always been really connected to history ever since I was a little boy, maybe like five, six years old. I was really drawn to the past and to, to military history in particular. So I eventually became a Civil War reenactor and, and I do First World War reenacting now exclusively. But because of that, it, I ended up being in these locations, these historic locations where I suppose, as the thinking goes, you, the, the probability of maybe running into spirits or, or psychic energy or ghosts or whatever the heck they are is increased. Right. So, you know, even when I was a young boy, I think the, the first encounter I had was maybe when I was 16 at Gettysburg and Devil's Den, which I'm sure you've been to <laughs> Very familiar uh, in your neck of the woods. Yeah, right. Yeah. So just over the years um, in various locations, often historic ones, but not always. I've seen things. I've heard things uh, that just sort of defy logic, I suppose, which fits that paranormal category. Well, since you mentioned Devil's Den, what happened there? Well, that, that was a little odd one. I was up on Devil's Den looking into what they call the Valley of Death there between Devil's Den and Little Round Top. Mm -hmm. And it was um, a summer morning. Uh, I was there for a reenactment, actually. And I remember looking across the valley and seeing what I just assumed was reenactor because uh, it was a man dressed in a federal uh, northern uniform with a blue cappy and a red insignia on the top and blue coat and, and white shirt. And uh, I, it looked like he was hiding behind a rock. And I just thought it was odd. So eventually made my way across the valley to go say hello. As I approached, 
I realized as I got close, it's actually a stone monument. And it's one of these monuments to, I forget which Northern regiment was fighting there, but it's a, it's a soldier crouched behind a stone. But the odd thing to me was that it definitely appeared like he was colored. I mean, you can see blue and the red and the white collar and all that from up the top of little uh, devil's den. But I, I thought, all right, that's weird. Maybe it was just lights, you know, playing tricks on me or something like that in the morning. I took a picture and had that film developed later on. And of all the pictures I have at Gettysburg on that whole roll, just that one photograph, there is a sort of hazy cloud right in front of the monument. And you can see you can see the little round top behind it and the, the grass in front and the little creek that runs through there. But just right where this monument was, was this gray blob. First of all, I had some really weird stuff happen at Devil's Den. I've had my brand new camera, full batteries, just completely shut down. You know, this is back in the digital camera days and just refused to turn back on. When I got away from Devil's Den, I turned it on and it was fine. Then full batteries. For those who don't know, so the direction you were looking, the north would have been, you know, at the in the day of the battle, the north would have been in the direction you were looking. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, the Confederates would have been in Devil's Den, and, and you would have been looking, you know, towards the, where the Northern Army was positioned, too, which is interesting. That's just a, an interesting uh, little aside for those who aren't familiar with the area. Yep, precisely. And I've gotten some weird pictures around there, too. Just weird lights in the woods, like Orby stuff that I've gotten some kind of missed photos myself. I'm not sure. I can't remember if that one was at Devil's Den or another location, but uh, Gettysburg is just, it's a charged place for whatever reason. Yeah. And, you know, my traditional interpretation of these things over the years, and, you know, I can go through some of them too, is that, you know, it's just, oh, it's the souls of dead people, whatever that means. But actually being exposed to um, to your podcast, Strange Familiar, started listening to it in the summer and then started listening to all the others that sort of branch off from there, like Bigfoot Chronicles. And they speak about Faye and some other theories that might be out there about what this is. And, you know, one of the questions raised, I think, even in one of your Gettysburg episodes was, is there something about the place itself that draws out this energy and interacts with humankind. So most of the experiences I've had at Guttersburg, I, I volunteered for the park service there as a, a volunteer uh, ranger, essentially. And most of my experiences have been personal ones where there's no photographs or, or EVPs or anything like that, but lots of activity of, of mainly audible footsteps and the sounds of voices in the field and, and that sort of thing. And I would, I'm kind of nuts. So I would sleep out there at night and would be out there at that sort of liminal time where it's dusk, you know, dusky kind of a environment. And so, uh, you know, it just seems to be a little bit more magical at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And well, the whole mood changes of the town too, when the sun goes down, that's what I always tell people. If you go to Gettysburg stay at least stay until the sun goes down. If you don't want to do the ghost hunt stuff, it's all kind of commercialized. I know, but the mood really changes when the sun goes down. You can feel the air kind of change, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Cause it is a bit, you know, Americana honky tonk there during the days with all the tourism, as you say. And yeah, at night, it's definitely and in the winter, too, is a great time to go when the crowds have died down. Yeah, we tend to go over a couple of times during the winter and then we'll try to hit it in the fall one time as well. I absolutely love the area. I know that you wanted to you were asking for some sleep stories and some of the, the stranger things that have happened to me are certainly involving sleep and in particular sleep paralysis. It's not something that I've ever experienced before the first time it happened. It's only happened three times. I haven't had it elsewhere. I mean, I don't know if it's environmental or what causes it, but 
In other words, it doesn't happen in my apartment, for instance. But the first time it happened was probably the, the strongest experience. As I mentioned, I, was a, I used to be a Savorian actor. And back in 1999 and 2000, we were doing some movie filmings at Antietam in Maryland, Central Maryland, which I'm, I know you're familiar with that territory, too. Yes. They, uh, they, but they put a call out to high-quality reenactors. They were going to do a two-week shoot. And you show up and you sign your waiver. And it was actually really high quality stuff because you're reenacting on the actual battlefield. So when you're shooting in, in the sunken lane or in the cornfield or on, on the bridges there, it's on the actual ground. So it's, it's particularly special and a, a nice memory for us, but very realistic in terms of, you know, what they try to accomplish in the film. And so that's sort of the setup. This was, uh, I was living in the Bronx at the time. I, I went to college in the Bronx and I kept my uniforms and my and my rifle, my equipment at my mother's house in upstate New York. So I went to upstate New York, got my stuff, spent the night, told my mother only that I was going to Antietam. I had done this filming the previous year, too. So, you know, she was familiar with what Antietam was and, and that it's a battlefield and everything. But we kind of left it at that, went down, did the first week of filming. And then on a on the Saturday... The, that middle weekend, that Saturday there, the filmmakers came to us and they told us that, listen, guys, um, we're actually going to shoot at another battlefield that's close by called South Mountain. And South Mountain was a, a battle that had ha- occurred several days before Antietam in 1862. And they wanted to just film some prep scenes there that they wanted to insert into the, the film project they were doing. So we're like, all right, yeah, Roger, you know, that, that sounds good. So we went over to South Mountain and what we filmed there was an artillery scene. So they planted charges, explosive charges in the ground, and they had us advance in battle line into a wood. You know, that's obviously the more dangerous aspect of what we're doing. And you have to, of course, have a pyrotechnics expert there that knows what they're doing. It seemed uh, that perhaps they didn't have the best trained <laughs> pyrotechnics guy there because when we advanced in our battle line, a charge went off in our battle line. It was Oof. supposed to detonate after, yeah. After we went over it and these guys, they were packing some black powder in there. It's not like today where they use, I think it's mainly like a steam hydraulic or something buried in a pot. And so there's actually not a much of a concussive blast um, these days with the stuff they use. But back then it was just straight up black powder. And when it went off, it knocked five or six of us onto the ground. And that was not called for (laughs) in the script or anything like that. I myself suffered a bad concussion. I remember just being, you know, tossed on the ground and and just sort of being out of it, waking up on the ground and, and just wondering what the hell happened, basically. That happened on Saturday at South Mountain. Well, we went back to Antietam to sleep. We sleep in these long rows without tents campaign style as the, the soldiers would have when they were on campaign without any tentage. And I remember I was asleep. I don't remember that part. Sorry. I, I was asleep and I was having a dream about a Confederate soldier. And he, it was like, he was hovering right above me, staring me right in my eyes. And even though this is almost 20 years ago now, I still remember what his face looks like. Well, it was so intense that I woke up. And when I woke up, I started feeling this tingling sensation in my fingertips and my lips on my eyes and my ears, the, the sort of sensory areas, almost like you're like when your limb falls asleep, that sort of numb tingling feeling. And I went to move and I realized I was paralyzed. So I've never experienced this before. It's, it's obviously disconcerting. It's, it's, a, it's a scary thing to not have control of your body. So I went to wake up the guy next to me by calling his name. And when I opened up my mouth, I couldn't speak either. So I was paralyzed and I was mute. And 
as this, these moments are going on and I can't tell you how much time passed. I mean, it could have been 30 seconds. It could have been two minutes, but it felt like forever. I started feeling this pressure pushing down on me and what felt like I can only describe like a forearm pressing down on my throat, like it was choking me. So at that moment, I, I did start panicking a little more and I just used every ounce of strength I've had in me to just force this thing off of me and eventually just broke free of it. And as soon as I just mustered that pinnacle of energy like that, it just went away like the snap of a fingers, all the tingling stopped, the pressure came off, the choking sensation stopped and, uh, and I could speak. And I woke up my buddy next to me. He was a little too tired and just passed right back out again. That's weird enough, but Tim, that's not the end of the story. So the week goes by, we do the rest of the filming. Nothing ever occurs again when we're doing, when we're there. I, I don't have any other issues with sleep or dreams or anything. Unfortunately, uh, no other accidents on set. Well, I go back to upstate New York the next week, drop off my uniforms and my rifle with my mother, and I spend the night. And I don't mention any of this to my mother. I had it had some weird experiences, as I said, even when I was younger. And I think she was always a little skeptical and dubious. So uh, I just dropped it, right? And I wasn't going to mention it. Well, we're getting ready for bed. And she says, you know, John, I got to tell you, you know, something really weird happened to me the other night. Now, now my mother's name, her name is Mary Jo. Her first name is Mary Jo. I said, okay, well, what happened Saturday night? And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, well, geez, something happened to me last Saturday. Like, Let's see what she's got. She said that, well, the phone started ringing. And I looked at the clock. I was, you know, it was around one or two in the morning, I think is the time that she said. And she picked up the phone and said, hello. And there was a man's voice on the other end of the line. And she didn't recognize it. It sounded almost like it was a long distance call. It was a little muffled and, and a bit echoey. And he asked, hello, is this Mary Jo? And she said, yes, who is this? You know, she was obviously waking up out of her, her sort of sleeping stupor. And he repeated again, hello, is this Mary Jo? And she said, yes, what is this about? And then the man on the other end of the line said, I just want to let you know that all the boys are all right on South Mountain. And that was it. Wow. So she knew you were going to Antietam, but not South Mountain. Exactly. She'd never heard the term South Mountain before. She didn't know what that was. Didn't know what the reference was. And, you know, I've told this story to friends and they said, well, maybe the film producers were calling your mother as like your emergency contact. And I'm like, that is definitely not the case. It's a low grade production company. They're not calling next of 10 at one or two in the morning to let them know that there was an accident. We're in the middle of the country. I mean, you've been to Antietam before. That's the boonies in Maryland. There's no public phones. This is before cell phones. Right. Uh, oh, really? You know, so someone or something called my mother in the middle of the night to let her know that the boys were all right on South Mountain. And you would think, like, if it was someone from the production, you'd think they would say, I'm calling from this production. Just want to let you know that, you know, we know your son was down here. Everyone was okay. You know, they would give more information than just the boys are all right on South Mountain. Precisely. Precisely. I agree. I mean, to me, you know, you just, you feel it. And obviously this wasn't the first experience I've had that was strange. And I just knew in my gut what that was. And so at that point, once she had disclosed the story to me, I told her about what had happened to me that day and that we were at South Mountain and what South Mountain is in, in this context. And uh, yeah, she was, she was pretty stunned. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. That gave me chills, that one. That's really wild. 
the sort of vision you had of the Confederate soldier, did that disappear when you sort of were coming out of sleep paralysis or was that there the entire, like when you felt the pressure on your neck, was that image still there? Or was that gone? That was gone as soon as I opened my eyes. Okay. So I remember like that was dream portion, the Confederate soldier. And it wasn't like I was in, so we were sleeping in an apple orchard and it was pitch black out. There were stars in the, in the sky. I remember that, but I woke from dream state to then seeing that I was in the apple orchard with these stars over me. And that's when these other sensations began. Okay. Just out of curiosity, were you reenacting Confederate or Northern? Well, that day at South Mountain, we were doing Northern. Okay. Uh, we were doing a Connecticut regiment that had gone into the wood. They had like two weeks training before they threw them into, into combat. And these boys just got pounded. But for the filmings in general, we would switch sides just depending on what was needed for the scene. And, and I've always done both impressions. I'm, I'm from the South originally. I'm from North Carolina. And my ancestors fought for the South. Maybe that was one of my uh, great, great uncles or great, great, great grandfathers rather that uh, was a little angry about <laughs> me switching sides. Then <laughs> <laughs> that's really, really interesting. Just a quick aside. Did you hear our show about the photo we found with Blind Joe Parsons? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. I'm, I'm all caught up. <laughs> that was just an interesting Civil War thing. I was just, it just reminded me uh, when you said Antietam, but he, we actually found out it, it wasn't Antietam. Where, where was he? I'm asking my wife. He was at first battle of Bull Run. They said Antietam in the ah. newspaper article, but pretty much <laughs> everything else we found out about him is true. Like that he carried another, you know, the Confederate soldier and all the other stuff we, we found out is true, but they, they just had the battle wrong. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, so this was the first sleep issue or <laughs> whatever you want to call it I had. There were two other times that I had something similar, but not nearly as intense and without phone call involved. I was staying in a bed and breakfast in Salem, Massachusetts, of all places, with um, an ex-wife, now ex-wife. And I was woken in the middle of the night by a woman. I didn't see a woman, but I felt a woman laying on top of me. And uh, this is going to sound strange, but the only sensation I can describe is that it felt like a weight laying on top of me that paralyzed me. And I felt like she kissed me on the mouth. <laughs> oh, and wow. I felt, yeah, I, I felt her mouth. And without getting too you know, detailed, I mean, I felt her tongue as well. And it was a cold sensation. And eventually my, my ex actually woke up because she could tell I was struggling to get free of something. And mm -hmm. she woke up right when the sensation kind of zapped away again. One could ask, well, do you go to historic places and then you set yourself up for this? But I wasn't in that mindset. I was just there to enjoy a beautiful, you know, fall weekend in Salem and wasn't thinking anything except that it was a, a very pretty historic bed and breakfast from the 1820s or it was when it was constructed. But then this happened. Did they have any stories of that bed and breakfast that it was haunted or anything like that? I didn't ask, um, and they did. They certainly didn't advertise it. You know, sometimes, well, just depending on the establishment and the proprietors, sometimes they'll advertise that sort of thing as a as a gimmicky kind of thing. I stayed in um, the hotel at the Inn of Jim Thorpe in PA, and they advertised that as being very haunted, and, and I actually had an experience there too. But this case, nothing, uh, nothing was really posted. And then I guess the, just to burn through the last one, the third time it occurred, something like sleep paralysis occurred. I was at Fort Mifflin in Pennsylvania, excuse me, in Philadelphia, right beside uh, Philadelphia Airport. And I don't know if you've ever been there, Tim. Have you been to Fort Mifflin? 
I have not. That's the first place you've you've. I've been to Salem. I've been to uh, Jim Thorpe, but this is the first place you mentioned. I actually haven't been to. All right. Well, your record's still pretty strong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a wonderful historic location. It was originally a fort constructed there before the Revolution and saw heavy combat in the Revolution. It, uh, the British sailed warships up and they had land batteries and just pounded this thing into marmalade. And a lot of men were killed there in the Revolution. It was modernized, and what you see now is more War of 1812 era. But then during the, the, the Civil War, American Civil War, they kept Confederate prisoners of war there and the underground bomb proofs, some federal soldiers, too. So it's a, it's a well-known haunted site, I suppose. You know, ghost hunters went there or continue to go there or whatnot. But um, one, we, we do uh, living histories there where we set up all of our gear and are you know, wearing uniforms and just talking to the public. And I was posted in a guardhouse. Uh, it's actually a sally port sort of on on one end of the fort there. Tiny little room. It's freezing cold night. It was uh, probably in the teens that night. This event was in early March. And me and one other guy were sleeping in this guard's quarters. And I was beside the, the little fireplace trying to get some heat out of this fireplace that wouldn't draw worth the dam. I fell asleep. And once again, I, I woke up. This time, right before I woke up, I had the image of a colonial era dressed soldier, at least late 18th century uniform that he was wearing, and a sense of that he was angry. He was angry with me. And I woke up and I could see the room around me. And once again, paralyzed, couldn't speak, um, the same kind of tingling sensations. And again, like a weight, like someone pushing down on me with their hands on my chest and struggled. And now it's, this is the third time. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go again. And I you know, just had to use all muster all my energy and eventually kind of fight this thing up. I don't think it was malicious. The sense I got was that I was in his spot and it's his post. And as you know, like a soldier's post, that is his to defend. So I think it was more along the lines of like, I was in his territory. That was the sense I got. It's interesting that, you know, it was sort of place appropriate. This was a more of a colonial type versus the, you know, the Confederate you saw at South mountain the pressure thing is common, I think, with sleep paralysis. That's why those old paintings you see of, I think it's called Nightmare. It's like a someone you know laying on bed and an imp or something like crouched on their chest. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that one. Yeah, that's supposed to be like sort of representative of sleep paralysis. The stuff that surrounds it is is what's interesting to me. You know, the fact that you dream this, you know, sort of colonial soldier beforehand, and the Confederate one before the other one. Yeah, and then a lady in just a, a well, the civilian's house. I mean, in a, in a regular person's home. Yeah, um, yeah. Where again, it would be appropriate for the context, I suppose. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Interesting, also, and I'm sure you know someone who want to write it off would just be like, "Well, you're not in your own bed. You know, you're somewhere else. So that's why these things are happening." I'm assuming that you know you you've uh, camped away from home many times, other than these three times where nothing happened. Yeah, precisely. And I mentioned in the beginning, like if, I mean, I don't know that much about sleep paralysis. It seems like it would be a condition that would be with you for a period of time anyways, on a regular basis. But this has only happened three times at these locations, but not all historic locations. I've slept on many a battlefield and it hasn't happened on any other except for that one in Antietam. And it, you know, it hasn't happened anywhere else except at Fort Mifflin, another military site. So I mean, I, if, when people push back against that, that's fine. I, I understand it sounds strange, 
I'm only going to defend it so much because I don't really know what the heck it is either. But then taken together with, uh, you know, as I mentioned, some of the other things I've seen and heard over the years, uh, I sort of lump it in together with just strangeness and, and paranormal. Yeah, and I mean, this has come up a bunch lately, and I just have to say that the number of people who have experienced paranormal stuff that also have sleep paralysis is huge. I don't necessarily think it's causal either. I think people that haven't experienced it will say it's causal. You, you've had the sleep paralysis thing, which is what gave you visions or a sense that there's, you know, a presence or a ghost there. And I, I don't know if it's A then B. I, I think it's like A and B together. There seems to be some sort of connection there. Yeah, I, that's exactly where I'm going. That, exactly. Yep, I agree 100%. Did you have any non-sleep paralysis experiences. Yeah, I mean, I could run through some other stuff. I don't want to, you know, blitzkrieg you here, but I'll, let me start off with one other sort of material piece that I walked away from once. I mentioned the photograph at Gettysburg. Um, the only other time where I walked away with something, there is a historic village in Long Island called Bethpage Village. And what it is, very interesting site. They've uprooted these historic homes from around the country, mainly the Northeast, that were going to be slated for destruction and then move them to this large outdoor park. I mean, it's essentially a field with woods and, you know, a stream and that kind of thing. And they've recreated this historic village of homes that date anywhere from, I think the latest is like late 18th century or early, um, early 18th century or late 17th century, all the way up into like the mid 1800s. And so you walk around this village and on Christmas, uh, around Christmas time and around Halloween and whatnot, they allow people to walk and you know, experience the place at night and it's all lit by candlelight. Really cool experience. They have costumed interpreters there who interpret the history of the house. And I was, I walked into one house and just decided, eh, what the heck, I'll keep my recorder going on my phone and just see if I capture anything. And I was speaking to a lady about that Fort Mifflin experience. I was telling her, I'm like, oh, have you, have you, I asked if you had ever been to, or if she had ever been to um, Fort Mifflin. She said, no, you know, I'd really like to go. And you know, at some point, and and then you just hear sort of a whispery voice say two words, and and I think what I hear it saying is one of my friend's names, his first name and last name, this guy that I go to Fort Mifflin with, and you, there's a lot of background noise, like you can hear the phone kind of shuffling around in my pocket, but there's only one point in the tape, about a minute in, or well, not tape, digital recording. <laughs> I um, say the same where, thing. <laughs> where you hear, you hear something. And, you know, if you ask the people that work there, many of them, or maybe even most of them, have had experiences over the years, including full-bodied apparitions that have appeared to them in the house. And I find that fascinating because it's essentially saying, well, the house is haunted, but not like location, geographic location. They've moved these houses to someplace else, and something has attached itself to the physical structure. It's really interesting that it kind of reminds me of... I guess the sort of a mirror of that opposite in a way was that haunted place. We went to um, the farmhouse and the one lady there woke up and said there was a slave woman on her bed who was talking about the master Well, this house dated after slavery. Like this, you know, it didn't go back to, it went back to the, you know, 1880 or something. I, f I forget the actual date. So it was built after slavery, but yet this woman was, it was a black woman who was talking about the master. She was very, you know, definite that, that this was a, a slave woman. So it's, it's like, what's going on there? You know, like, like, what is that? I think people can be haunted in a way. And I think 
I think these energies probably could follow these houses. I mean, why not? If that's where... If ghosts are the spirits of the dead, and that's where people had whatever emotional experiences tied them to this plane, say, why wouldn't they follow the house? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's sort of sensical in, in terms of, um, you know, a very straightforward way, I guess, of looking at human life, right? One is born and has a soul, and then one expires and the bodily form passes away, but in some cases, for whatever reason, this spirit remains. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You're familiar with that, the world soul concept, I suppose, right? Like, um, I actually just picked up, um, daimonic reality. I've started reading that. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, Harper uh, speaks about in there is this, this older concept that there could be this, this external soul outside of the internal one. And that kind of goes to, you know, maybe it's not a spirit of a dead person. Maybe that's just how it manifests from this greater, you know, energy or whatever you want to call it that is around. Right. And yeah. it, it interacts like it, it, it requires the person who is observing for it to exist. But at the same time, it does exist on its own, but not in the form that does. It's, I don't know, we're getting a little deep, I suppose. <laughs> no, it's, these are the concepts that are really hard to explain, but which I love and I think are really important. And, uh, yeah, I, I often will ask, you know, ghost hunters if we get, get into it, you know, I'm, I'm at paranormal conventions and stuff and, and, uh, have talks with them. And sometimes I'll just ask like, well, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's not like as simple as being a spirit of the dead. And most of them shut down in the same way that Sasquatch researchers will shut down. If you suggest it's not an undiscovered primate or a, you know, a undiscovered hominid, they just turn off right away. Like, nope, not, we're done. This, this conversation's over. You know, it's, it's just too much, but 
that kind of thinking that Harper in particular really kind of opened my mind. Dynamic reality kind of slapped me upside the head in a way. And I have a real hard time explaining those same concepts like you were just saying. Like, yeah, when I believe this Bigfoot witness saw something that was real and solid when they saw it. You know, when it left that footprint, it was absolutely here and real. And then, but, you know, it's, it's not a regular animal. And these are the real hard concepts that I'm trying to find ways to to explain, I guess, half the time. He speaks about literal true versus a different level of truth, right? Like, like a metaphor can be true. You know, you could be feeling emotions when watching a movie or a good play or, or even towards, you know, someone you love. I mean, you, you love your wife, but how would you possibly prove that that is a literal truth that you love your wife? It doesn't make it any less true because it's not literal. And, you know, that, that kind of speaks to what you're saying about the, the Bigfoot in my mind. Like, it can be both material and immaterial at the same time. It doesn't have to be one or the other. I think maybe, you know, when you start seeing people tune out, when you start going that direction about Bigfoot or you start going this direction about, quote unquote, ghosts, maybe it's because, like, they're, I feel like people are so desperately clinging to this little island of, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're just starting to convince people that it's the souls of the dead. And we're using science to prove it and to capture it with EVPs and cameras and all other like electronic meters and whatnot. Don't go off the deep end now, right? When we're starting to, you know, form some body of evidence or something. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely the case. And and certainly in, in the Bigfoot world, it's like, you know, we're, we got experts looking at footprints and DNA and so forth. And now you're talking crazy talk about them being here, but not here at the same time. So yeah, that's, that's absolutely yeah, yeah. the case. I feel like it might sound too poetic, but there's something about knowing it, it, Maybe it's a sixth sense element, but you just know when something has occurred. You like, you know, when someone's looking at you, you know, they sort of like predator in the woods kind of thing. Like when you feel like you're being watched, when I was in that bed and breakfast, well, I'll give you another example, actually, of where I, I felt a female presence, even though I didn't see anything. I was in a bar. I live in Brooklyn, uh, in New York city. And I was in a bar in Manhattan in the West Village visiting a buddy who uh, bartends there. We, didn't, we weren't talking about the history. I didn't know anything about this place. I, I certainly wasn't thinking this bar is haunted. I hadn't heard any stories like that. But I went to uh, go use the restroom, which was on the second floor. And I walked up the first flight of steps and then turned and went to go up the second flight. And as I turned, it felt like a woman in a white dress. I see, see I say felt, but... I feel like this white force just kind of run through me, passed through me very quickly. And it felt like a woman and it felt like a woman saddened in some, like there was a mournful element to it. And I swear to God, man, like I just, I started crying, not bawling, but just became very emotional. My eyes started watering. My, I started tearing up from feeling this energy and then her sadness. And, you know, my wife thought I'd go to the bathroom, so I went upstairs and went to the bathroom. I went back downstairs and told my buddy, I'm like, hey, listen, have you ever heard any strange stories about this place? And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, like maybe it, that there's any spirits here or anything. And he's like, oh, I haven't seen anything. But this other bartender, he says that he sees a woman in a white dress walk between like the back of the bar and the kitchen area after they've closed up for the night. And the first time it happened, he ran in there because he was assuming it was a customer who had been locked in. He ran into the kitchen area where she had walked, and of course, there was no one there. Hmm. I have experienced that rush of emotion as well. A friend of mine used to do uh, spirit contact, 
And I remember there was a certain spirit that she, she said she contacted over and over again. I'd never been around her when she supposedly contacted this spirit. And she contacted this spirit who was supposed to have been a young man. I was a young man at the time. I think he was, I remember her saying that he was exactly the same age as I was, I think. In any case, whatever it was, uh, supposedly this person, if this was a person, had killed themselves or something. And I was hit with this wave of emotion where I I started crying almost. And uh, it was a really weird sensation because I wasn't, I wasn't actively involved in the contact with the spirit at all. I was just there, you know, when, when they were uh, doing the spirit contact. It was a very, very strange feeling. I didn't feel particularly connected in any way to this person. I mean, of, of course, afterwards, they're telling me all about everything they supposedly had learned. And, and I forget what, I think they used pendulum. They weren't using a Ouija board. I think it was a pendulum they would use to contact this entity, whoever it was. But it was not a comfortable experience. It was very strange. Yeah, it, it certainly. I mean, it's it's unsettling. And like, even though these things happen and I've experienced them, like, I don't feel like I fully ever get used to it. There's still times where I'm just terrified because of the unknown element, I guess. Like, what what the heck is this? It just doesn't feel... It's normal, I suppose. Like, these things are happening around us, whether we perceive of them or not. But it's also sort of magical. I mean, I it's changed my life and, you know, just... Maybe not my, like, it hasn't given me any sort of philosophy on life or, you know, a a hard paradigm, but just more being open to possibilities and, you know, understanding that not everything is as we think it is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you got any more? Yeah, I got more. Um, You know, I guess building off of that line, like, how do we explain these things? Um, You didn't have a connection to that place or to that entity or whatever that was right that that you felt that wave of emotion well i was visiting turkey actually and um i was there visiting uh, or i was traveling through there with my mother and we decided to take a trip into the center of the country and to cappadocia and they have what archaeologists posit is the the virgin mary's house you know who knows if it's really the virgin mary's house but right certainly they seem to think it is and and i think crucial to this to the this place is that a lot of other people believe it is and have believed it is for at least decades. Maybe, you know, I don't know how long they've discovered this site. It's partially destroyed and, you know, just portion of the house is left over, but you can go in and, and you walk through it and wait in line with thousands of other people. Essentially. I was there. It was really hot. I was, I mean, I'm a, obviously I'm into history. And so as the history element of it, I thought it was fascinating. I don't consider myself Christian. I was raised Roman Catholic, so I'm certainly aware and you know familiar of the, the stories uh, and the belief system. But we were waiting in line to get in the Virgin Mary's house, and I was next in line. And when I stepped through the precipice, my entire body started shaking, like uh, trembling, almost like when you were, you'd be afraid or if you were jacked up on adrenaline. For I have no idea why. I, I just assumed I'd be walking through this house. It was going to be of historic interest, and that was it. And I just felt waves of of energy passing through me. And it wasn't negative. It was sort of a neutral, maybe somewhat more positive feel to it. But just coursing through my body so that I was shaking. Once I got out of there, you know, I, I told my mother what had happened. And I don't know what to describe that to. I mean, my thinking is you have 
thousands and thousands of people who are very devoted to a belief and, and at a specific entity, the Virgin Mary, and they bring that devotion with them into a very small confined space. And I think maybe it's what people are creating there, kind of like the power of prayer element uh, in, involved there, where people are bringing energy to it and creating something. Yeah, it could be. Don't underestimate the the power of uh, that Catholic upbringing, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. I thought I got out. At, well, you know, I didn't have a horrible experience. It's not like I, you know, had a bad experience in it. But, I, I, you know, I got away from it like you. I, you know, I kind of that was I was raised that way and I sort of went off on my own thing. But, uh, you know, Mary came back to me. You know what I mean? It, it, and it became a thing where I was like, well, this is not this is part of me. I should say it that way. It's and I and it could simply just be because it's, you know it, it was part of me growing up and I sort of internalized that for whatever reason that has stuck with me wherever else I go and it took me a long time to come to terms with that I was like well I'm not Catholic I don't you know I don't know but mm. uh, it's like I tell my wife is it doesn't matter anymore I just know that whatever that <laughs> that energy is it works it, the Virgin Mary uh, I'm good with her. She's good with me, and, and I don't know if she was a real person or represents something else or a symbol or literal mother of God. I, I'm, I'm beyond that anymore. I just know that it's something that works for me. So uh, that's just my yeah. take on it. Though. But, yeah, no, you could be very right, just the concentration of sort of energy in that area. I mean, you know, it, it, again, we go if we go back to Gettysburg, where I've had a lot of experience there, I hope I'm not jumping around too much, but you know, talking about positing of energy. I mean, it's interesting though, because, you know, there's plenty of battlefields and it doesn't seem that all of them are as haunted as Gettysburg or haunted at all for that matter. But in my time there, especially, um, I mean, I visited a lot as a historian and as a reenactor, but when I lived there for the summer and to summer of 2000, I think it was, I would walk around the battlefield just to explore, to get to know the land. And there were times where I'd be walking in a large open field. The grass is high up to like up to your chest, at least, or maybe your waist. And you could hear, I, or I should say, I could hear someone pacing me, walking behind me or alongside me, the sound of footsteps walking through glass. And when I would turn around and, and look, there's nothing there. And the grass isn't moving, but I can hear what sounds like footsteps following me. Times where I would, I would stop and, the footsteps would continue one or two paces on and then stop again before the sound just ultimately faded away. I would say like, it didn't sound like it, this, this sound of footsteps walking away, the sound faded away. Yeah. That's reported again. This is something that people will report at other times, other places often attributed to Bigfoot when they're in the woods, but often they never see a creature. It's one of these just sounds that people hear, but it's, it's exactly what you described where it'll pace them and they'll stop and they'll hear it step a couple more times and then they'll keep going and, and it'll, uh, you know, repeat the same thing or repeat. So that's very interesting. You know, I wonder what people are experiencing if we're, if we're talking about the same thing in, in two different places that just, if you're in the woods, it gets called Bigfoot. If you're on a battle, you know, haunted battlefield, it gets called a ghost. Right. Yeah. Context specific, I suppose. There's been other times where in the, at night, and uh, I was actually with a number of friends, and so we, we all corroborated it. But uh, we were out there some cold November night for Remembrance Day, and they always do this annual parade there. And we were at Cemetery Hill, a very aptly named place, I suppose. 
and coming from the southern portion of the battlefield, in other words, down towards past Cemetery Ridge and down towards uh, where the round tops are, we heard the sound of what sounded like gunfire and not single discharges or shotguns, um, which would be strange for someone to be out there either shooting guns or hunt, certainly not hunting, I would think, in the middle of the night. Um, November is, of course, getting it is around that deer hunting season, I suppose. But this was at night, and it sounded like multiple black powder rifles discharging, almost like that sound of lightning, like a muted sound of lightning. That's what a volley of Civil War-era rifles sounds like when it discharges. And we heard that coming from far away. And we were like, do you hear that? Do you, do you guys hear that? And we are like, yeah, what the hell is that? And we are like, wow, that's wild, man. That's just wild. The National Battlefield is, is a national park. And I don't think, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but even when you're doing reenacting there, you almost have to get special permission to carry the firearms on the field. Yeah, that's I don't think correct. They don't let firearms in the National Military Park, I don't think. And certainly no one should be hunting yeah. there. Right, exactly. And even then, that this was probably um, yeah, maybe like 20 years ago, and so the rules were even more strict. But it's, you know, I, I'm not going to claim it was right, like it was Civil War ghosts. I'm not going to, I can't possibly say that, but it sounded like Civil War rifles discharging. And I do know that there are stories that come from that place, from that battlefield of people, obviously lots of sounds, but people have claimed to hear discharging guns, bugles, or drums being played, that sort of thing, for no apparent reason, uh, and completely disembodied, it, it would seem. But right. um, yeah, I, I suppose a lot of my experiences have been more audible now that I'm actually talking about them. I have seen orbs as well at Gettysburg, lights floating around in the woods. Oh, really? Yeah, and then but then you're talking about, like, is that Will of the Wisp or, or something strange like that, that that's not related to the to, you know, the events that occurred there in 1863. But yeah, I've, I've seen an orb at, at Cemetery Hill again that looked like the size of a softball and, and rose up into the tree. And I was with a few friends. It was, it was actually that same, I should, I'm sorry, I should say that was the same night that we heard the gunfire. So we were at the, the cemetery trying to get ourselves spooked, I suppose. And uh, we, we heard this gunfire and then it died down. And just shortly thereafter, we saw an orb and I don't remember seeing it come from anywhere. I just, we kind of glanced off to the side and saw this light rising up into the tree. And uh, in other parts of the battlefield at Culp's Hill, which is a heavily wooded hill, I've seen little lights floating around there at night as well. Yeah, we caught orbs on film. Now, we didn't see them. This is old, you know, film camera days. You know, this is before digital camera even. And uh, we got some pictures. We got them back to develop and we were just out on the battlefield at night and in the woods where the, I mean, there was no road there. There's, it looked like almost like headlights and we got several pictures and can see them moving, but I wasn't taking pictures of orbs. I, I didn't see them at the time. It was very interesting. They moved from picture to picture. I think we got two or three pictures and you can see them, you know, they're in different places in each picture. Yeah. That's always wild. I mean, I think you've spoken before or I've, I've definitely heard this idea of, you know, why it's sometimes these things don't seem to show up in pictures, even when you are attempting to capture them, when you're specifically Mm -hmm. going out there to do that. And I mean, to me, it does kind of make sense. Like it, it, I, I don't even fully understand the technology of how a camera works, let alone a digital camera. And so what, what's to say that 
something that you are happen to be seeing through your little organic eyeballs would actually show up on film or vice versa, that something you're seeing with your eyes or that you can't see with your eyes do does show up on film later and, and you didn't see it in person. I mean, that's just sort of, I'm sure there's some sort of scientific explanation, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. To me, it sort of ties in and I don't know if you've gotten that far in uh dynamic reality yet or not, but Harper does talk about this idea of sort of disappearing evidence and uh, it sort of ties into that with me where it's like, for whatever reason, we just don't get it. We're just not allowed to have it. It's, uh, I think that Tobe Johnson said it's like, we're, we don't have permission to take photos. We have permission to record audio for whatever reason, but photos, it's like what it, the phenomenon, whatever it is, it's just like, we don't have permission. And, uh, the, it's like all the physical evidence just disappears. I think this is kind of the same with, with this photo evidence. I think it just kind of, it disappears in the sense that it ends up blurry or, you know, inconclusive. Right. Which then begs the question in my mind of why are we so desperately trying to prove that it's real through, through that means. I've all but given up. If I'm contacted by, you know, uh, uh, like recently I was contacted by a, a Bigfoot witness who's the woman who's very afraid. She thinks they're coming around her property. And I said, well, put a bunch of trail cameras out. That should keep them away from your house, at least. And it's not that I think she'll ever, I don't think she'll ever get a picture of them. It's just whatever the phenomenon is, it doesn't like photos. So yeah, it's they, ironic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they tend to stay away from trail cams for whatever reason. I don't have a lot of hope that we're going to get a clear photo of anything. I mean, if it happens, it happens, but so many of them turn out to be goofy hoaxes. Right. It's yeah, almost well, to the point where, where the clearer it is, the more I'm looking for it to be a hoax, which is a sad way to look at things, but that's the way it's turned out, you know, every time in the past. I suppose there's a, the, the element of the trickster in there. It feels like, you know, that they, they just won't be, they defy being caught on camera and and published that way and of course even if they are people will just dismiss it i mean there's videos that come out of of ufos you know or lights in the sky or whatever and it even sometimes on local news networks and then it's it's in the news one minute and gone the next i mean i i would feel like if that was you know why isn't it registering with people that that is a, a that's a something really strange and bizarre that we should be paying attention to so i don't quite get that either but even if you did have the evidence people I think would just sort of zone out about it. Yeah. And and in this day and age, I think there's probably any number of, for whatever reason, disinformation agents that just immediately come out and say hoax, no matter what it is. And then you have, you you have your, you sort of professional, I don't mean in the terms that they're paid, but I mean, in the terms that they consider it part of their personality, there's sort of professional skeptic. That's just, just ready to debunk everything, no matter what, without even taking a look at it. And they'll just, you know, scream hoax, immediately no matter what i've seen photos that people have for instance people said oh that's photoshopped i can tell that's photoshopped now they ended up being not what people said they were but they weren't photoshopped you know but here right away people were claiming you know oh i can tell that's photoshopped that's photoshopped yeah i don't know why they're why people just feel the need to be skeptical i mean i i think skepticism is a healthy thing of course and i apply it to all my own experiences that i've had there's been more things that i thought was strange at the moment and then you know, I ruled it out through just deduction and using natural explanations for it. But, you know, the the professional skeptics, it seems like that that seems like a strange thing to devote your life to is by to disprove everything instead of like creating your destroying in a way. Without being a jerk, I think there's a certain personality that's drawn to that, that 
you know, it's a very materialist thing and, and it comes out of a certain aspect of the culture and, and certain people, they can feel intelligent by just, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to debunk everything. And true skepticism is absolutely healthy. You know, that's why, like I often say, I'm, I'm glad my wife's a skeptic. It's good to have somebody around that's like, let's look at that a different way. You know, rather than just saying immediately, that's junk. She'll just take a step back and look at things from a more critical point. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. We need people like that. Yeah. Yeah. You got to keep a, keep them honest. Otherwise you get lost to flights of flights of fancy, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And I, which she, my wife would tell you, I'm, I'm uh, absolutely uh, <laughs> <laughs> prone to that. But in any case, the, the people who just say no immediately without looking at the details or, or the surrounding facts or anything, that's, those are the, the yeah, I guess the, the capital S skeptics that are problematic, I think. I find myself just in terms of where I'm at right now. And I think, you know, since I started listening to your podcast last summer, or I think it was like in August or something that I, I found strange familiar. I found it by, by when I was listening to the last podcast on the left and Henry Zabrowski, I, I think he mentioned your, well, one of your flannel man uh, episodes, one of your early flannel man episodes, which I had never heard of that entity or phenomena before. That was bizarre. But anyway, since that time, I've just started kind of going down this dual path of one sort of the more like, I guess, the daimonic reality concept of, you know, what are what are these sort of ancient archetypes inside of us and how much of it is collective unconsciousness and, and that. But then at the same time saying, well, wait a minute now, if we start looking at quantum physics, they're starting to discover like, you know, I think they call it spooky science. I mean, because there's things that scientists are observing on the quantum level that would appear contradictory or magical or simply impossible because they disobey the normal laws of physics that we apply to like i guess everyday reality yeah oh yeah yeah and now josh cutchin says i said this i don't remember ever saying this if i said this it's one of the smartest things i ever said <laughs> my only problem with quantum <laughs> physics and again josh says yeah you said this is that if you think you understand quantum physics, you don't understand quantum physics. And I swear I took that from Josh, and Josh swears he that I said it. So I don't know who said it. I don't think it was me. I really think someone else said it, and maybe Josh thought I said it. But in any case, I think it applies. There's so much to it. It's so weird, and it's so spooky that I keep it out as a possibility, but I don't try to use it to explain things. Because there's been some people who have written books on quantum physics and the paranormal that have... They've kind of missed the mark on it and because uh, they're not quantum physicists. But yeah, it does open up a whole world of possibilities and, you know, possible explanations. I just sort of back away slowly from it just because, uh, <laughs> and, and I think Josh says this too, it's just, it's almost using another, just another name for, uh, someone might call it Faye, someone else calls it the Jin, and, and the third person calls it quantum physics. It's like, okay, we've just given another name to it without really explaining it yeah i suppose it's just a good thing to have in the back pocket and you can you know as part of a larger discussion pull it out and say well you know how about how about this what how might this factor in or be used as a method of explaining these otherwise things that just seem impossible you know i i do love this idea that all things that are material are really just energy Right mm -hmm. on the subatomic level, just vibrating energy. Like in every sense that we have, whether it's sight or hearing or touch, like it's perceiving and interpreting these vibrating 
little subatomic particles. That's all it is. So that's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just some like weird stuff there. I mean, uh, do you know of the double slit experiment? Have you heard about that? Yes, absolutely. So there's a lot to it, and I'm not going to attempt to explain it. I mean, I understand it by watching a cartoon on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the interesting things I took away from it was that when scientists were trying to observe the all the possible paths that this uh, particle could travel, they noticed that by simply the act of observing the particle and flight changed the outcome. Yes. And that was like my mind started melting at work when I watched that video. Good thing I was having lunch at the time. Yeah, that was just that just blew my mind. And to me that's that puts a bigger possibility on the use of magic in the occult sense. The band Psychic TV always said defined it as you know, forcing the hand of chance in that if you think about that double slit experiment and if you can in some way nudge that particle to one slit or the other you know, maybe there is something to the, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, magic or, or even prayer, if you want to think about it that way, if you want to think about it in, in a Christian term, you know, maybe, you know, if we can affect that by observation, maybe we can affect it also in other ways through power of uh, positive thinking or magic or prayer or however you want to think about it. Yeah, and I, I think that's it's really interesting. I mean, we are obviously, I think, rightfully very science heavy and are at least in a, in a you know modern sort of cultures these days where we try to use science to explain everything you know how does well maybe that is science i suppose on a quantum level but that you can explain to somebody that the outcome of something will change depending on whether you're observing it or not so therefore the reality changes depending on whether you're observing it or not um and so it it requires both things so you know in a very simplistic way I wonder, does Bigfoot exist because humans are here to observe it? Would it not exist if there wasn't something here to observe it? You know, and not to say that it doesn't have existence or presence or whatever it is separate from humans. I, I think, in other words, like there, there has to be both agents there in a way. Mm -hmm. Oh, I would agree. Yeah, I don't know why, but yeah, I absolutely agree. Beyond that, I think sometimes... I think if there's a group of people together and they see something, there's been some sort of agreement on some level, uh, whether it's unconscious or whether, you know, the other decides you are, you all are going to see this. But I think otherwise, you know, what one person, if you, you know, given the same situation, one person might see a Bigfoot, another person might see a, a ball of light, a third person might see a big cat, you know, that, that shouldn't be there uh, or, you know, an out-of-place ghost or something. Because I do think these things depend on, on our observation and react to it. There's a form of a kind of co-creation going on there in some way. Yeah. And, I mean, certainly with a lot of these entities or whatever you want to use to describe these things, th there's this concept of, like, them needing us to acknowledge them, like, to heed their presence. And and it doesn't seem like there's much, sometimes there's much more than that. Like they're not attempting to communicate that we must do something or change our, our, our behavior or our life or whatever. They're trying to force something on us. It's almost like simply the acknowledgement is enough between it and, and us. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I mean, some people have thought like, like maybe they're, 
they get something from our fear, you know, because often there's a fear response involved. I don't know. I mean, I think that's entering into nothing but speculation, but I, I guess all of this is nothing but speculation really, but um, <laughs> right. it really does seem like, I, I mean, I was, so Josh and I are writing this weird Bigfoot book and we were talking about, you know, what if they were natural creatures? And I said, they would be king of the world. Like, why would they put up with us? They're 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 not invisible. They're super fast. They're super strong. They're, they can see in the dark. They have thick skin, which no primate uh, it, primates don't have thick skin. So apparently, these things have thick skin. They have a tapetum lucidum. They can see at night. No other primate has that. They have all these things that, that no other primate has, along with the super strength, super agility. Uh, apparently, some kind of language. Why would they put up with us? Why wouldn't they just smash us and take over the world? They'd have no problem doing it. You know, it it's it just doesn't make sense that uh, to me. The the more I go on, you know, like maybe they need us in some way, and in some way maybe we need them. And uh, if it's that, you know, they need to be observed or they need to, to draw energy off of us, or in the way that we need them as archetypes of you know this this wild archetype in the woods or whatever it is. You know, maybe we need to coexist. I hope that they don't make that into another sequel of Planet of the Apes, like whatever Planet of the Apes four, except it's Bigfoot this time. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't think it'd be much of a challenge. I mean, if they yeah. wanted to pick us off, they could pick us off. If they're everything that they would need to be to be a natural animal. In any case, we oh wow, we got way off track, but in a good way. <laughs> Can we end up? We you got one more like a. Have we done your most intense experience with the, I'm guessing the, the battlefield one, but do you have anything, another intense one? There's two other little quick ones, I guess, and they're not nearly as intense, but I did mention I'd stayed at the inn at Jim Thorpe in Pennsylvania. I was with uh, my, my then wife, um, and she insisted that we stay in one of the known haunted rooms, and she had never seen or interacted with paranormal, but she knew I had. And so, you know, just like the, the armchair general, when it's daylight, and, you know, you're awake and you're surrounded by activity. It seems like a fun idea to be sleeping in a haunted room. But uh, at night when the lights go out, that's a different story. And we had just turned the lights off and had like gone into bed. And it didn't feel like more than a few minutes had passed by when at the end of our bed, we heard a little girl giggle. Oh, wow. And that's just like you know, straight up kind of creepy. But just a quick giggle, like a hee hee. And, you know, a few seconds went by and I'm like, yeah, hey, did you hear that? And she's like, what was that? I'm like, well, that was a little girl giggling. That's what that was. And then later on at night, we started hearing rappings on the wall uh, behind where the bedhead was. And we thought at the time that there was a room next to us and maybe it was just the people in the room next to us that banging on the wall, like not not loud, but almost like knuckles rapping and making irregular patterns. And the next morning I walked out and went to go see if there was in fact a room next door, but it was actually a large sort of foyer that leads to the, the second floor balcony. There was something though, it sounded like on the other side of the wall at various heights wrapping on the walls. So that was, um, I do know the girl, the little girl entity had been reported in that room before. I don't know if laughing or had been, had been recorded over the years or anything or reported over the years, but that was strange. And then there was one other thing I, I, I mentioned that I I'm actually do World War One reenacting as well, and that's sort of what my, my focus is on these days. And I spent a lot of time on the Western Front in France, and uh, I mean those are those are some legitimately dark 
places. I mean, you, you go to some of those battlefields and the, the closest feeling I've ever had like that is if you were to visit one of the, the German, uh, the Nazi death camps like Dachau or, or Auschwitz and just this heavy feeling, you know, of not just sadness, but of darkness. Ironically, there's been very little activity or phenomena that I've experienced there aside from just this, this sense of foreboding that hangs over there. But what I do when I go there, it's all this sort of ground that's just left the way it is. And it's all churned up from the artillery bombardments. And there's no park rangers. There's no, you know, there's no security like you find here in America where everything's like fenced off and everything. So you can just walk around these woods and there's unexploded artillery shells everywhere and, and detritus from the battle, helmets rusting and bullets and rifles, all this stuff that's just been left there. And there's also these underground dugouts um, during that war. They were digging these trenches and everyone sort of lived underground to escape the projectiles and the gunfire. And uh, they dug a lot of underground dugouts to escape the bombardments. And you can go in them. Most of them are collapsed. So you have to kind of squeeze through this basketball size hole and then you get down about 30 feet underground and it opens up into the chamber uh, where the troops quarters were. And there was one of these that I was in. I've been in a, a number of them, but there was one I was in that was large and you could stand upright. And as I was walking through, it's, you know, it's quarried stone, essentially. It's all been quarried out with hand picks. It's pretty incredible. And you'll find bottles of beer down there and equipment and stuff that had just been left there from 100 years ago. And as I was walking through this one multiple chambered dugout, I heard someone running towards me full speed, the sound of boots running on stone. And I mean, at first I thought, is that the sound of a collapse? Because these things do collapse, you know, it's, it's dangerous going in them. And, you know, my mother's going to kill me when I tell her this, <laughs> if she ever listens to this, but, but it sounded like someone running towards me and immediately this, and I've been in a whole bunch of these things. I never get scared not like this anyway, this mortal terror just went into me, the sense of dread of, you need to get out of here now. And I immediately turned around and as quickly as I could, ran out of there and crawled out of the entrance and left that place. So that was a very um, startling experience, to say the least. Yeah, I'm I'm not a big caver. I don't like going underground too much. (laughs) That would be a little much for me, squeezing into a place like that. There is something that is truly like primordial. I don't know what it is, but, and I, you know, I suppose we could go all the way back into to folklore about underground, right. And like what exists underground, what's in the ground. But when you go into these, these chambers, I mean, they're, they're tight confined spaces, but it's pitch black. There's no sound and there's, but there's a, there's a presence to it. I don't mean that there's spirits or anything like that, but that it feels like you're almost going back in time when you go into these places. So it's like no other feeling, I have to say. Wow. Uh, just out of curiosity, have you seen uh, They Shall Not Grow Old? I have not. They only showed it a, a couple times in New York in the middle of the day, and mm-hmm. I was at work. But I have a number of friends that have seen it and absolutely loved it, so hopefully that will come out on, on DVD, and I'll be able to finally check that out. I think they're doing one or two more days in the theater because they, they set a popular demand. It's beautiful. It's uh, stunning. The restoration is stunning. They did on that. Yeah, I, I, the amount of work that they did to not just colorize the film, but then to clean it up so that it, you know, it, they've repaired it, and then they brought on all those forensics experts to not just determine what they're saying, but apparently 
gone to the level of being able to determine like what, or at least with the British soldiers, where they're from in England, yeah, based yep. on how their mouths are moving, like that's just incredible. That's, yeah, that's it, blowing. it's amazing, and they kind of do the Wizard of Oz thing. So you, it starts off with, I don't know, ten minutes or fifteen minutes of just the old footage, you know, and and it's all scarred up and and jumpy and everything, and then they cut into this restored color footage, and it. I imagine it must have been when people saw the Wizard of Oz, and all of a sudden the color comes on the screen. It, I imagine it was a similar effect because all of a sudden this, you know, the film's cleaned up and it it looks. I mean, you can tell it's old, but it looks all but modern. It's it, it's stunning. It's really really stunning. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It's, I, I'm, I love history. Oh, wow. I love history. I'm very interested in World yeah. War One, and uh, that was uh, a friend of mine uh, bought tickets. Thank you, Keith, and took me to see it, and it was stunning. I, I highly recommend it. Oh well, you got a good friend there, and Keith. It's interesting here that this is, you know, for uh, for not for your recording, probably, but I actually just published a book on the First World War that focuses it's narrative history. So you follow a group of French soldiers through some heavy combat. I mean, it's nonfiction. I'm using their letters and their diaries to tell the story of what it's like to be in the trenches, in the mud, covered in lice, and then under shell fire and you know under poison gas and and all that. But I got that published after working on that for a few years. And I, I have some of your books. Uh, well, I have your book as well. The one that just came out actually, um, where the road go and, you know, I, you know, from one author to the next, like, you know, it, it's just a lot of work, um, especially oh, yeah. cause you do, you do the research too. And that's but the majority of it right there. What's your book called? The Verdun regiment. Yeah. It's on Amazon. Yeah, I'm going to check it out because that sounds really. You said you, you you used the actual letters and stuff. Yeah, I went over to France and um, I got I amassed like six of their diaries, including some that were unpublished, and then and ended up meeting the descendants of the guys I'm talking that I, that I. So I had to translate all of it from French to English first, mm-hmm. and then um, you know it is a, a bit of a traditional military history in that you you have to provide a chronology and a, you know a framework to place over it. But the bulk of the book are just their letters that I've translated uh, and their diary entries describing the indescribable, essentially, you know, to what these guys went through. And I, right. I, I guess they might have showed some of that in the film or the restored documentary. But, yeah, I mean, it was sort of a, a like an act of love, I, I suppose, just to to be able to, you know, connect to these men that way and, you know, go to the, the places where they were and where they were suffering and where they were fighting, but, but it also ended up with this wonderful human connection. I mean, geez, even this, like the stuff we've been talking about tonight, I'm sure you've met some wonderful people over the years and, you know, I, when I was in France in November for the um, commemorations of the, of the, uh, the centennial of the armistice, I ended up getting hosted by one of these families whose grandfather was one of these guys who's in the book. Uh, Unfortunately he he did survive the war and uh, yeah. And they had me over for dinner and they, they invited all their friends from the village and, you know, they don't speak any English. I speak pretty decent French. So we were able to, to get along and, you know, have a whole night of conversation. And they brought out all their old bottles of wine from the wine cellar. I mean, it was a wonderful human experience to be able to share that. And in particular, you know, something coming out of war and, and particular the Great War, which was so horrendous that we could at least create something beautiful from that. That's um, amazing. At least a- gives me some solace. That's a wonderful. Do you care if I include this story in the, this part in the podcast? Oh no, no, yeah, that's that that's fine. I'm more than happy to. I mean, 
I just love, like, I love connecting with people. And for whatever reason, people in the past have always called to me more strongly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I genuinely just, I, I love these men that, you know, I end up talking about and to be able to connect their living descendants. Now we stay in touch. And it was the guy, the guy I first spoke to, it's his grandfather, but his wife, uh, and they're, you know, they're in their like late sixties at this point, early seventies. Um, she, she treats me like I'm her son. Like she sends me Facebook messages and, uh, <laughs> sends me pictures of her, her garden and like a new meal she just cooked. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, she's a wonderful woman and a lo- very loving family over there. That's amazing. That's awesome. Send me, um, a link to your book and I'll, I'll put that up in the show notes if that's cool with you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Appreciate that. I'm going to get it. I love that. And especially that kind of history and Allison too. I know if she, yeah, once she, yeah, I don't know if you heard that in the background. She just, once she heard letters, she was, she was in, she was like, yeah, I'm like, she just loves that. So yeah, absolutely. Send me the link. We're going to get it. And we do cover history here. Yeah, no, I, I love the, the local history you guys cover. And I, I, I love coming through South Central PA in particular. I mean, we, we do a lot of our great war reenactments in Newville, which is just outside of Carlisle. And, and so I'm in that territory a lot. So I like how, how you, you guys cover that, that aspect as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, most of the reason is because it's close <laughs> and it's easy to, uh, <laughs> to get to. But uh, it, we happen to, we live in a very good area for both history and, and weird stuff. So we're lucky about that, too. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I loved all your stories, but that bit at the end on your book, I, I'm, I'm very inspired. I, I just, I absolutely love that. So um, I'm glad you told that story. Thanks. No, yeah, I don't, I didn't even think to bring it up, I suppose, but, um, I'm glad, you know, we were able to talk too, because I'm inspired by what you do. I think, you know, your show is wonderful and it's not just the strange stuff you present, but, you know, it's how you speak and the guests that you bring on, how you interact with them. There's a lot of humanity in it. The music that you play, I actually bought to your, to your albums on, um, what's it, band, I forget band which, uh, Bandcamp. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, all of it together, like the artwork you've done too is incredible. Uh, oh, I love the illustrations in your new book. Yeah, you're, you're real talented. So I think, you know, it's, it's been, it's been great just getting to, you know, be a part of the strange familiars experience, I suppose, and tying it all in with creativity and imagination and human stories and history and, and all the weirdness. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Thanks so much. Before we go, I want to thank Zarin K for a PayPal donation this week. Thank you so much. It's a huge help to the show. Helps us keep making content. Helps us keep going. So thank you for your kind words. And thanks everybody for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts. Music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. And we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. And we also have the Strange Familiars Gathering Group there.
Here.